It's October 9th, 2013, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we cover the Geek Beat here on Hawaii Public Radio. First, we'll look at the latest tech news and happenings in Hawaii and beyond. And joining us today is Michael Palmieri to tell us about the upcoming Creative Lab at HIF. Finally, we'll find out what to expect from flu season and what technology is involved in developing flu immunizations. We'd, of course, love your questions as part of the conversation, so be ready to call in or tweet us. But first, the headlines. Well, Hawaii's space technology industry is moving forward with a state-level partnership with counterparts in Alaska and the appointment of a new chairman for the Pacific International Space Center for Exploration Systems, or PISES. Hank Rogers, a serial entrepreneur whose companies are among the most prominent in the Hawaii tech scene, will lead Pisces into its next chapter. The developments were announced yesterday at the Hawaii Aerospace Summit held at the state capitol. The states of Hawaii and Alaska committed to collaboratively develop their respective growing aerospace industries with a signing of a memorandum of understanding between the Hawaii Office of Aerospace Development and the Alaska Aerospace Corporation. The agreement notes that both Pacific states have unique advantages given their geographic locations and calls for sharing designs, training programs, and business and marketing opportunities. Jim Christofuli, director of the Hawaii Office of Aerospace Development, said in a statement that the partnership will provide unique and timely opportunities to combine our substantial and complementary aerospace resources to expand the frontiers of both next-generation aviation and space exploration. Rogers, meanwhile, shared news of his appointment on Facebook, writing, It's a great honor to have been chosen for this position, and I will do everything I can to make Hawaii the next world headquarters for space exploration. And, you know, I think uh, of all people that could probably do it, Hank Rogers is, is one. I mean, he's definitely one of the only guys that's kind of putting his money where his mouth is. Well, because, for sure. And then, you know, we had Kim Binstead on talking about high seas, and it was, a, it was pretty... Neat to find out that he was the one that financed the dome. Right, and actually he's been involved with Pisces since its conception, mm-hmm. its inception. So this is just the next step in terms of his involvement. And I definitely like his shooting, you know, basically a moonshot ambition mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for uh, Hawaii. Now, uh, we did cover when DBED took over the space exploration projects earlier this year. So it looks like uh, the momentum is moving very quickly now to making more of these things a reality. Well, and I got to, you know, hats off to uh, Jim Christofoli because uh, I've known that guy for several decades and he's been probably the, uh, the the lone voice in the in the woods about aerospace in Hawaii and the space program, and, and I'm glad it's coming together. Well, there's more voices for now for sure. Yep. Do you have the right stuff for a simulated mission to Mars? Well, speaking of that project, the next phase of the Hawaii Space Exploration Analog and Simulation, or High Seas Research Project, is underway. UH researchers are looking for crew members for a new series of on-site studies, and that site is the High Seas facility located at the 8,200-foot elevation on the slopes of Mauna Loa on the Big Island. The modern geodesic dome habitat is designed to simulate an isolated Mars-like environment. Well, the initial high seas study, which we covered here from the beginning on Bite Mars Cafe, was built around the develop, uh, developing menus and testing food preparation methods for long-term space missions. This time, uh, people will be the focus. The new studies aim to test group cohesion over the sh- short-term and long-term Observe how roles evolve, roles evolve over long-duration missions and establish baselines for cognitive, social, and emotional factors over missions of varying durations. The hope is to develop crew composition strategies as well as improve planning for earthbound crews and systems that are needed to support the crews while they are working in space. Study participants will spend four, eight, and finally 12 months in close quarters. Applications are now being accepted, but there are minimum qualifications, including meeting the basic requirements of the NASA astronaut 
Pilot Program. This includes passing a Class 2 flight physical examination, being tobacco-free, and being between 21 and 65 years of age. Now, you know, we uh, uh, found the first mission very interesting because it was kind of focused around food and the whole idea of having uh, an assortment of sort of food ingredients to create new menus and, and, and kind of have people, are, uh, you know, like the public kind of vote on or submit recipes and come up with ideas on, uh, you know, what was the best. But this one is more focused around the actual interaction of people over well, long was, durations. The, the food study did have that element mm-hmm. of the social interactions. Basically, you know, do crews work better when they do spend the time to prepare food for each other? Is there more of a connection, or would they rather stick to business and just open food packets and just deal with it that way? But you're right that this is definitely more of a social experiment, certainly not the first. You've heard some interesting stories about other attempts at long-term, close-quarters uh, space exploration simulations, so this will definitely be an interesting Well, you one. know, my, my thing is, uh, you know, are they going to remove all the sharp objects, and will <laughs> there be a vow of syllabacy? I would say I'm not even going to guess. We can ask Kim the next time we have her on the mm-hmm. show. I do like that it's not just science, that they are open to people who do writing or artistic endeavors, as long as that they can deal with being in close quarters. You know, maybe they might take might not take a tuba player, but, uh, you know, they'll do art. They're accepting arts, and as long as you can live without Internet. But uh, you can go to the High Seas site. You can even see them on Facebook if you're interested in applying. No Internet. Ah, forget it. <laughs> well, Navitech is a company that many people associate with dinner cruises off the coast of Waikiki, but the uh, Hawaii firm serves much more than tourists and has a global reputation for its research and development work in ship design as well. Now the company has announced that it is opening a, an East Coast regional office. By the end of the year, Navitech will have a 16-person, 20,000-square-foot research office in Rhode Island. The location will allow the company to expand its collaboration with the University of Rhode Island. Citing the area's concentration of expertise in ocean and energy research, Navitech officials have committed to hiring eight engineering graduates from the University of Rhode Island's engineering program and will establish a paid summer internship program for engineering students. David Kring, the company's chief scientist, said in a statement, we're eager to collaborate with the university to develop a future workforce and a continuing pipeline of new ideas valuable to the defense and alternative energy sectors. Among the projects to be based at Navitech's East Coast office are the development of computer tools for the U.S. Navy that will improve the energy efficiency of ships and developing designs to improve the output and lifespan of wind turbines. Navitech credited Hawaii Senators Brian Schatz and Maisie Hirono, along with Rhode Island Senator Jack Reed and the Office of Naval Research for supporting their alternative energy research. Now, you know, Navitech, I mean, I, uh, we, this must be about maybe a couple of years ago, they invited a bunch of us to go on their cruise. And the whale-watching cruise. The whale-watching yeah, yeah. cruise, and, you know, we did the whole thing uh, cruising down Waikiki and had a, had a meal, and it was great. I mean, it was fun. Of course, that's our normal sort of exposure to Navitech. Right, and it, but it is their whole designs, their ability mm-hmm. to create stable platforms um, for the military or for research purposes that is uh, clearly more of their bread and butter in the long term. And yes, that was a very stable uh, cruise for us, but uh, I can see how the military would be interested in it. Um, they're saying that Navitech is going to basically be bringing four or seven million dollars in federal R&D contracts to Rhode Island. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I think it's interesting. It's a Hawaii company, and certainly they are of value to the local business and science uh, communities as well, but you can certainly see how the East Coast and Rhode Island is much closer to the military industrial complex mm-hmm. for the opportunities they can pursue. Well, and well. I think, you know, whenever they're working some of these uh, deals in Congress, I mean, there's a little, little bit of uh, uh, partnerships that might take place and some things that might benefit the East Coast versus, you know, right. our UH. Uh, um, they are building a big wind farm off uh, Rhode Island, so that's mm-hmm. part of what this research is going to.
Now, for those of you who still use your smartphone for making phone calls, a recent study by the researchers in Hawaii and Ireland may take some of the pressure off cellular carriers for the perennial problem of dropped calls. The new science adds credence to the long-held belief that solar radio bursts caused by solar storms on the sun disrupt satellite and terrestrial communications, including cell phone calls. Our sun sometimes unleashes huge uh, eruptions of hot gas that push billions of tons of matter in our direction. That creates huge shock waves that race through the solar atmosphere at millions of miles per hour, accelerating electrons to the point of producing powerful radio waves. Lead author Peter Gallagher, based um, at Trinity College in Dublin, said in a statement, what we have found is fascinating, a real insight into how radio, uh, solar radio bursts are created. Advancements in solar observations allowed scientists, including researchers at the UH Manoa Institute for Astronomy, to characterize the missing link between solar storms and radio bursts. The team was able to generate high-resolution 3D images of solar eruptions in space. They used data from multiple spacecraft, including the Solar Dynamics Observatory, as well as antennas in radio-quiet locations on Earth, such as in Ireland. The findings were published this week in the journal Nature Physics. As a result of this research, scientists will be able to better predict whether or not solar storms will hit Earth and cause severe space weather conditions in our atmosphere. They also have a better understanding of the fundamental physics of solar storms. Now, of course, you talk to any of our ham radio friends, and they'll say, what's... What's so, the news? Yeah, here? what's so newsworthy of this? But uh, they already know that you know solar storms. In fact, we have a friend, um, uh, Ron Ashiro, who's always mapping or, or kind of paying attention to when the solar storms are and sort of telling everybody, "Be prepared." Yeah, he'll even be on Facebook, like, "Hey, if your uh, if your your cable goes out or if your phone calls don't go through, this is probably why." This is more about how they've been able to more directly observe it and study it mm-hmm. using these new instruments. Uh, they were talking about the uh, uh, the solar or sonar uh, satellites, one in front of Earth and one behind of Earth, and because that has a unique side view of the sun. They're being able to generate these images. So it's definitely interesting stuff. Finally, one more quick story I wanted to share with you. Hawaii-born tech startup is a finalist in the national competition to get its gadget on store shelves, and they need public votes to win. GB Technologies, one of the participants in the Blue Startups cohort uh, in this second round, is developing a waterproof, lightweight GPS tracking device for pets. GB already made it up to the uh, top 20 finalists in Walmart's Get on the Shelf contest. The GB is also a top four finalist in the Great Gadgets category, and that's where the team needs your help. Public voting in the semifinal round will begin on Monday, October 14th, and will run for only three days. In fact, wrapping up probably when we have our next show. So if you want to support them to find out more about GB, you can go to GB Technologies. That's G-I-B-I Technologies.com. And to set up an email reminder to be notified when voting starts, you can go to getontheshelf.walmart.com. Com. And the co-founders of this uh, company are both from Castle Hyde, graduated from Castle Hyde and yeah. UH Manoa. Sheree Louie and uh, Sinet Tom, good luck to them. And now joining us here in the studio is Michael Palmieri from the Hawaii International Film Festival to tell us about the Creative Lab at HIF. And of course, we also have, I think, uh, Georgia Skinner on the phone. want to welcome both Michael and Georgia to the show. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. Aloha. Thank Aloha. you so much. Well, you know, Georgia, I mean, uh, you know, Michael came all the way from L.A., and, and you're in Hawaii, and you're calling in. I mean, what's uh, what's going on, Georgia? <laughs> I have a legitimate reason. I have a, a hip issue that my doctor says I have to stay 
in bed. So okay. well, um, well, doctors are very, very specific, and I like to follow doctor's orders. Well, that's a good cover story. It has nothing to do with George <laughs> Clooney and Jennifer Aniston being in town. Okay. So, um, <laughs> Michael, let's start with you since you traveled the furthest. Um, now, th- there had been like sort of labs for creative people associated with the Hawaii International Film Festival last year, but this seems like a much more ambitious and full program. What is the creative lab at HIF? It's um, well, it's a, actually a partnership between the state of Hawaii and the Hawaii International Film Festival, and their intention was to create an immersive educational experience for both local, national, and international artists who would have an opportunity to bring a project and workshop it over a specific amount of time and, and really – you know, up their skills a notch and their projects a notch with the intention to eventually getting it made, you know, produced and distributed. And it's something that, uh, as you said, we had we launched it last year. Um, we had what we called the New Media Camp and uh, Sound and Vision. And this year we're adding four new additional programs, uh, one of them being a broadband accelerator, which actually uh, the reception for it is tonight. Um, and that's for producers who are producing content uh, whose main distribution platform is the web. Uh, we have a writer's accelerator, which is for screenwriters who are writing stories for motion pictures, film, and the web. We have a producer's accelerator, which, again, is dealing with uh, you know the issues and opportunities and challenges that producers are facing in motion picture television and other industries. And, um, again, we're bringing back Sound and Vision, which is our music program and the business of acting, and bringing back, again, from last year, the new media camp. So it's a really just beefed-up program with some amazing coaches and speakers uh, this year. That sounds great. And Georgia, you know, um, I like the idea that a lot of these uh, new programs have this accelerator element to it. Uh, uh, Has uh, has, uh, Carl Fuchs had any influence on you? (laughs) Well, you know, he is a big influence on so many of us. But I think we're all uh, part of the the DBED group and with the state of Hawaii, we're really focused on high growth initiatives. And the creative media component is a huge industry. We know that we have an opportunity in the state to really open the door for our creative content developers who may not have had this kind of access in the past. So this accelerator, a pop-up accelerator, if you will, Hmm. uh, is starting off modestly, but we hope to grow it, and uh, Carl is very aware of it, and we hope he'll be attending some of the public talks in addition to the immersive talk. Well, I'm definitely excited about this intersection between technology and the creative arts. And uh, 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 Michael had mentioned, for example, the broadband uh, uh, creative accelerator for, say, people who want to become YouTube stars and create content specifically for that channel. Uh, Michael, can you tell us a little more about some of the speakers that are part of this program? Sure. Uh, We actually, uh, the broadband accelerator is specifically for people who are bringing in stories that they're looking to serialize on the web. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is both fiction and nonfiction. And uh, the individuals that we're bringing to coach the program are a gentleman by the name of Bernie Sue, who just won one of the first interactive uh, Emmys for a web series called The Lizzie Bennett Diaries, who's done it incredibly well. Uh, A woman by the name of Wendy Jo Carlton, who launched a web series called Easy Abbey, and who in less than 10 months received 10 million views. And the head of production for Yahoo, who is one of three people who selects producers and their content that Yahoo will acquire and distribute through their multiple channels. And then as a keynote speaker, we have Bing Chen, who ha- who is head of uh, global programming for both YouTube and Google. So we have an amazing group of people who've come here to coach our participants. So we've been able to select out of uh, almost 20 participants, six individuals who uh, have phenomenal stories and who we believe will we're investing our time and, and our energies into to, uh, to uh, help them with their success because 
because their success is our success. So for the most part, uh, have the accelerator programs already been filled? I mean, you've already put the word out. People have already applied. People have already been selected. Yes. The program actually launched about three months ago, and we had a very um, very intense application process. People, It was a competitive process, so we chose individuals who had had several you know, life experience, education, had produced content before, and who we believed had stories or ideas that uh, uh, would benefit the marketplace and, and viewers and themselves. And obviously, one of the key components for us was to choose participants who represented the state of Hawaii. So actually, out of the four, out of the six participants we chose, four actually come from Hawaii mm-hmm. and two from uh, the mainland. Now, Georgia, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, Writers Accelerator? I think that starts next week. Yes, it does. And the uh, this is a great partnership with the Writers Guild of America. Uh, it's a, a very important organization for all writers in any form of uh, visual media, whether it's television, feature films, or uh, broadband uh, online content. Uh, we have a tremendous lineup. We have a public talk with Bobby Moresco coming up, and he's, of course, the Academy Award-winning screenwriter for Crash and um, uh, Million Dollar Baby, just a terrific not only a terrific writer, but a great mentor. And he's uh, visited us before uh, when we were, I was involved with the Maui Writers Conference, and he's coming back again. Uh, he really loves to nurture new talent. And then uh, from the Writers Guild, we have uh, some top writers in the field, Julia Cho, uh, who's a writer from Big Love, Fringe, Betrayal, some great television series, Dennis Leone, executive producer of Resurrection Boulevard, and Leah Villalobos, executive producer and writer for La Misma Luna. So, um, again, wonderful hands-on experience. And another component of the accelerator on the Writers Accelerator and broadband side is that they will get a year of coaching from Michael. So the participants will stay together as a cohort in a virtual space because we don't have a full-time creative lab accelerator yet. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, yeah. so um, Georgia, you know, ideally, I know this is sort of the inaugural year, but uh, are you uh, thinking of having this thing uh, sort of be uh, an annual kind of uh, uh, event? Absolutely. We want it to be annual. We are uh, hoping to secure some additional funding in the legislative session to expand it. And uh, we see some linkage with some other uh, accelerators in the media field that are being discussed uh, Carl and, and some other people um, out there in the uh, tech, creative tech uh, space. Fantastic. So, now, now yeah. uh, Michael, there are, I mean, there, so there are intensive programs for writers and people in the industry, but there are some things that, for example, we might be able to attend and, and Absolutely. And there, uh, there are programs available to general audiences, and they're free. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, the first one is the keynote speech by Bing Chen, uh, the Bobby Moresco uh, keynote session, as Georgia just mentioned. We have what we call Tales from the Set, which is producers talking about uh, producing, and that's on Sunday, the October 13th. We also have a case study of a film called Fruitvale Station, which is a critical darling, ah, and uh, and that's we actually have the producers c- to come and discuss uh, with us what it took to take this story, which was based in a true, um, li- you know, true life event, uh, and and take it to become a movie. And we have the business of acting workshop, sound and vision. So please, please visit us at on Facebook at Creative Lab at HIF or uh, www Creative Lab. Mm-hmm. Um, people will be able to get information about all the pu- public programs, which primarily happen. Um, at the modern Honolulu, which is one of our um, the sponsoring hotels, sounds great. Ten is this Friday, so yes. mark the calendar. That sounds like a good one. Sounds great, and uh, so we want to thank you, Georgia and Michael, for joining us. 
Thank you, guys. Thank, really appreciate thank you. the support. Great to be here, and uh, we hope to see you at HIF. Yes. Yep. Thank thanks, you thanks, Georgia. And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Dr. Bill Atkinson and Joe Elm to talk about flu season and the tech behind immunizations. What can we expect for this flu season, and is the flu virus getting more resilient? We'd, of course, love your questions as part of the conversation as well. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And we're constantly monitoring Twitter, so you can tweet us your questions at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. This is ByteMarks Cafe. Burn. Down in flames. Almost every sports fan has had a moment where you're like, I cannot believe my own emotions right now. The next thing I know, I'm being hugged by this woman just slinging me left and right. Left and right. Bottom of a pile. I couldn't breathe. It was like, oh my God. What is it about a game that makes it more than a game? We wonder on the next Radio Lab. Saturday morning at 10. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Greetings, I'm Oscar Miro Quesada, author of Lessons in Courage. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about transforming oneself and the world through sacred living. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Dr. Bill Atkinson and Joe Elm. Bill is the is formerly of the Centers of uh, Centers for Disease Control and now with the Immunization Action Coalition, a national leader in immunization education. Joe Elm, meanwhile, is from the Disease Outbreak and Control Division of the Hawaii Department of Health and was, in fact, on the news earlier this year talking about a rare infectious bacterial strain of E. coli. In Hawaii, is, is Hawaii more vulnerable due to the visitors from the east and west? Of course, we'd love to hear your comments and questions. And the number to call here is 941-3689 on Oahu or one eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine from the neighbor islands. Bill and Joe, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank Thanks. you. Glad to be here. Bill, we'll start with you and uh, ask you about uh, the flu season. Is, has flu season started? Are we supposed to be concerned about the you know the uh, flu virus? I think you could probably argue that Hawaii is always in flu season. Uh, it's uh, more temperate uh, than the rest of the United States, but classically, we see it pick up on the, at least on the continent, usually a little later, Mm -hmm. October, November, but it's very, very difficult to predict. In fact, it's impossible to predict. If you remember the epidemic we had a few years ago, started in July, and so it's very, very difficult to predict, and so we have to basically be ready for it. But typically, it's uh, November, and the peak, though, is in February Mm -hmm. in the whole country. So on the the continent, I mean, is it sort of seasonal? Is it, you know, during the winter, does the virus sort of go dormant, or what's the the sort of normal course on on the mainland? It typically peaks in the winter. It's Mm -hmm. believed to have to do with relative humidity and the fact that people stay inside and you need people close together coughing on each other, uh, breathing mm-hmm. on each other to really transmit the virus effectively. And that doesn't happen so well in the summer when people are out. So mm-hmm. it's probably a function of humidity, temperature, and close proximity, air circulation, lots of other things. But it typically is a wintertime October through March phenomenon, mostly on the mainland. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, uh, 
uh, Joe, here in Hawaii, it seems like the the media seems to have flu season on their calendar. And then sometime around uh, September, October, uh, they just start going out and talking to doctors and finding people blowing into Kleenexes on the street and saying, okay, Mm -hmm. this is it. But uh, what Bill is saying is it could be at any time. So do you see a reason to have a start and an end to when we pay attention to this sort of thing? Well, the flu vaccine development takes several months, and this is the period of time when development has reached uh, the level where they can start putting it out. And every year around this time, we have a Stop Flu at School program where we offer vaccine to students. And so this is before the season. Vaccine is just out. It's an appropriate time to start. Gets people immunized before the season really hits. Mm-hmm. But we've seen... Uh, in past years, like this past year, a late kind of flu season where it shifted from A to B, and uh, the flu B was predominating late in the season. Uh, 2009, the swine flu out here was April, May, which is kind of out of the season. But as Bill said, you know, any it could be any time. You mm-hmm, know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of factors that go into that. Now, how would you? Uh, I, we have a couple questions that came in uh, via email, and, and one of them was. Uh, can you sort of characterize the difference between a cold and the flu? Oftentimes, it's a matter of magnitude. Uh, colds can make you feel bad. They give you a stuffy head. They can make you maybe a little feverish feeling. Influenza, a full-blown case of influenza uh, in a person with a new virus that they haven't really had before is a severe disease. I had it for the first time I remember when I was 19 when I was in college, and I thought I was going to die. It causes severe muscle pain, coughing, dry cough, headache, high fever, 103, 104. So this is not sniffles and stuffiness. This is is sledgehammer on the head, uh, high fever, uh, cough that feels like your lungs are coming out. So it, it can be a very, very severe disease, and that's what exacerbates uh, pulmonary disease and can lead to deaths mm-hmm. from influenza. Mm-hmm. It's definitely something that I, I feel is more recent than long-term for me. Uh, maybe I just managed to block out getting shots in school when I was a kid, but definitely with my kids, uh, as uh, as Joe had mentioned, there is a school program, and they come through, and they, they keep everyone pretty well informed. Uh, Maybe, uh, Bill, you could talk a little bit about the history of developing this uh, seemingly annual vaccine. I mean, has it has the technology been essentially the same, like the way uh, penicillins always work the same? Or in, in recent years, there have been advancements in technology that we can do a better job of creating these vaccines? Well, influenza is a virus, and the nature of a virus is a parasite, and it has to live inside of a cell. So in order to grow flu and make a vaccine, you have to find a way, some living tissue to grow it in. And it was discovered in the 1940s that you could do that in a hen's egg that had an embryo, basically a fertile hen's egg that had a baby chicken in it. And that was uh, discovered in the 40s, and really starting in 1945 up until this year, Every single dose of influenza vaccine, the virus that's in it, was grown in an embryonated hen's egg, a chicken egg. Hmm. And that, you can imagine, it takes months to do that. It's a technically complex. But this year, for the first time, we actually have two influenza vaccines that aren't actually grown in eggs. Finally, for the first time, with all the technology, we had these new vaccines, one of which is genetically engineered, so there's no egg at all. The other one is grown in a different kind of tissue that gets us away from using eggs. So the technology was the same for 
what, almost 70 years. And finally, for the first time, for this year, for the first time, we have some non-egg-based vaccines. Yeah, because I remember, um, whether it was the last year or the last couple of years, there were a lot of news stories about using a live egg. And uh, there were, uh, I I remember seeing videos of, of just, you know, tons of eggs that were being used. And then, of course, the situation where there's a potential shortage because there's not enough eggs. And and um, I guess they've they've solved that problem. Well, it becomes an issue of homeland security to some extent because in anticipation of a of a epidemic, which actually happened in 2009, the Department of Health and Human Services actually put into place a mechanism to make eggs, these eggs, these critical eggs that are all the vaccines made in, uh, make them available more than just in the classic flu season. And it uh, it takes basically one egg to make one dose of influenza vaccine. And we produce, not we, the manufacturers produce something in the order of 135 million doses a year, which takes 135 million embryonated eggs. Huh. And mm-hmm. that's no small order. Yeah. And of course, uh, if you take all those eggs off the market so that they're used for, you know, like uh, th- these vaccines, um, doesn't that raise the price of eggs? Well, remember, this is a special kind of egg, and the eggs that are used are grown in special farms with special chickens. Oh, really? Oh, oh yes. It's a very specific. This is You don't go down to Safeway and get these eggs. <laughs> it's not a Costco this, egg, right? Not yeah. at all. You There are very specific growers who, because you want to have these, these chickens isolated, because mm. chickens get diseases, too. They get viruses mm-hmm. and other things. These are isolated very well cared for chickens that are grown specifically to lay the eggs that are used for the flu vaccine. The farms are not advertised. Uh, it's not something that's commercial, but there are obviously enough chickens to produce 150 Whoa. million eggs every year. And this is a very specialized uh, thing. This is not your average egg. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Dr. Bill Atkinson of the Immunization Action Coalition and Joe Elm from the Department of Health here in Hawaii about the development of flu vaccines and the technology that might be involved if you've got a question, we'd welcome your call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We're also checking your comments on Twitter. Now, Joe, so this is the first year with this new technology creating these uh, these vaccines. Uh, have you been able to, to look into it yourself? Is there uh, a confidence in its effectiveness similar to the old-fashioned, traditional, chicken-based way of making these? Well, I think so. The... the Obviously, the recombinant technology has been long awaited. It's been years in in the coming. And the upside of that and part of the problem when you do uh, egg inoculation is sometimes the virus is more lethal to the embryo. And if the embryo dies, you don't get the same amount of vaccine out of that egg. And then they have to go back to the drawing board, kind of do some recombinant work with the virus so they finally get to production up. And we've had slowdowns in production because of problems just getting the virus to grow properly. Well, now that we have this recombinant technology, it kind of takes that out of the equation. Uh, We're not dealing with uh, chicken embryos anymore. It's very fast to retool. You can scale it up because you can do spinner cultures. And uh, it's uh, probably going to change the face of what we do in um, and vaccine in the future. Do you think so, Bill? Well, it will certainly prepare us for 
for instance, what happened in 2009 when this brand new or this relatively new virus just showed up and suddenly we had to create a new vaccine in the middle of the season. It will definitely that's the basically was the driving force behind this was to be able to respond to an epidemic more rapidly to create vaccine without being at the mercy of these chickens mm-hmm. laying these stupid eggs. So <laughs> no, no, this, no. The, I will point out that this recombinant technology, the technology they're using now to produce the vaccine is not new. It's essentially the same technology that's been used to create hepatitis B vaccine for now for more than 20 years. So it's not like new technology has been invented. It's just being applied to a vaccine where it's never been used before. Now, I want to I want to get back to the eggs because, you know, I mean, apparently does, you like eggs. I, I do like eggs. And does this necessarily mean that the manufacturers or the growers of chickens that were laying these eggs are now kind of out of business? Well, there's still still the vast majority of the vaccine in the United States is produced in embryonated chicken eggs. And so it's going to be a transition. It's just that this is really the first time ever in the history of flu vaccine in this country we've had one we've had access to one, the technology and a couple of factories that were able to produce it without using the eggs. Mm-hmm. So still I I don't know exactly the numbers, but I suspect that probably ninety percent or more of all the vaccine available this year will be egg-based. Mm-hmm. But as we move forward, I think these new technologies will become uh, more used and we will see the amount of eggs being used start to decrease. Now, I, I, I'm curious, you know, when taking or getting a, a flu vaccine, uh, will you know whether it was egg-based or it was uh, this new technology? Sure. The, there's two two vaccines. They're, they're by name. It's Companies, specific companies make these new vaccines. One is made by a company called Protein Sciences called Flu Block. That's the recombinant vaccine that has no egg in it, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is actually a really major step forward for people who have egg allergy. Right, Lots of people add. couldn't take the flu vaccine because it, was, it all had egg in it. Mm-hmm. This is the first time they've had an option. Uh, the other one is called uh, Flu Soul Vax, the one that's grown in tissue culture. And probably together, those two companies this year, I don't know, maybe we'll produce 5 to 10% of the market. So uh, you you can know. You can ask them what the name of it is or ask for it by name, and uh, you'll be able to find it. It's it's being distributed throughout the, the country, but obviously not every pharmacy or health department will have uh, every brand of mm-hmm. vaccine. Now, Joe, you had mentioned the recombinant process, and we've talked about that quite a bit, and uh, uh, Bill had, uh, mentioned that it's been around for a while. I guess the one question is, if that technology's been around for a while, it's been used for developing other medicines in the past, why flip the switch for flu and influenza now and not 20 years ago? Was it a matter of difficulty or something else, another barrier? Boy, that's a probably a little bit of a political question and part of... It's kind of hard to say. Although it's basically the same technology, um, it, it it's using a different virus. Uh, the f- vaccine for uh, hepatitis is grown in yeast cells. And uh, yeast cells have, um, although we can do fancy things in this recombinant technology, when you introduce a protein like that, the one of the things that happens is what they call post-translational glycosylation. It's adding a little <laughs> piece of sugar to the protein molecule. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that interferes with the antigenicity, the ability of the vaccine to induce a good immune response. So uh, that was a problem with some things that they tried in yeast. Um, it didn't seem to be a problem in the um, uh, with this baclovirus mm-hmm. uh, recombinant thing that uh, is they're using for, for flu vaccine. 
So um, I I, I'm sure there was uh, <laughs> some political pressure sure. to you know maintain eggs. It's a proven system. Uh, the whole world has been relying on it for, as Bill says, like 70 years. Uh, I don't well, know. Remember, you have to build a new plant. There's a practical issue here, too. You can't just take a plant that's been using eggs for 50 years and suddenly turn a switch, and suddenly you're doing recombinant technology or tissue culture. You literally have to build a completely new plant. Plus, you have to get the vaccine approved by FDA, which to produce it, make the test lot, to build the plant – literally cost millions of dollars to do that. So it was a very mm. expensive and 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 costly and and time-consuming undertaking. And we're happy that at least – and this is all private industry now. Right. The government didn't do any of this. It, it, companies had to take it upon themselves to basically say, we're going to invest in this technology and go forward with it. And it was a big deal, and we're happy that it's happened mm-hmm. finally. You know, we're talking to uh, Joel Elm from the uh, Department of Health and uh, Bill Atkinson, uh, from the uh, Immunization Action Coalition, and we're talking about the flu virus and and the effectiveness of uh, the various technologies that are now being uh, uh, utilized to develop the flu vaccine. And if you have any questions or comments or uh, you are interested in, in what the, the flu vaccine might be um, able to prevent uh, in this coming flu season, uh, give us a call here. The number is 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at one eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. Now, I I was kind of curious about uh, whether or not uh, there is an effort to study the differences of the let's say egg um, vaccine versus the recombinant vaccine. I mean, if people are able to take one or the other, are there studies trying to get some effective you know effectiveness of one versus the other? Yes, they in fact that's required because the egg-based vaccines have been the standard of the industry for so long. Any new vaccine has to prove itself against the old egg-based the the egg-based technology. So for FDA to to approve these vaccines, uh, it's based on response. They would give take a group of people, give half of them the egg-based vaccine, half of them the new vaccine, test their antibody response that they get, and they would have to show that the vaccine is at least as immunogenic as potent as the as the uh, one it might replace in the future. Mm-hmm. So no, FDA has got very strict criteria about licensing a new vaccine, and it has to be shown to be uh, as safe and as as uh, immunogenic as as uh, the current version on the market. Mm-hmm. Now you were mentioning earlier that. Uh you know, private industry, they would have to fund the building of whatever facilities to do the new technology, recombinant uh, uh, technologies. But at the end of the day, are they, for the most part, kind of guaranteed some payback? Because for the most part, a lot of these vaccines, the flu vaccine is offered for free. So there is some, um, you know, some compensation that, the, you know, the companies are getting as a result of, you know, b- uh, developing all these flu vaccines. Well, no, no dose of vaccine is free ever. Someone is going to pay for it. Right, right. So uh, these are private companies, and they're in it to to in, as a business. And th- granted, it's not a huge, it's not a huge uh, uh, money making uh, operation for them. But but every dose of flu vaccine, whether the individual pays for it out of their pocket or not, is paid for by someone. Right, right. And yes, they're they're usually they will try to scale up, and we don't want to have a uh, fifty million dose of vaccine that go. Get go get thrown away, but some years, if there's not a lot of motivation to the public to to get the vaccine, mm-hmm. there is vaccine left over, and it just gets wasted, and that's vaccine that's not used and is a loss to the company. So they try to 
balance the need and the demand for the amount that they produce, not to make too much and make sure there's enough. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. a balancing act that's that's it's it's very complicated and and nobody wants to have too much pro- too much right. product left right. over, right. but you want to have enough that everybody who wants it does can find it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's a it's a it's a very complex system, and it, uh, it works remarkably well, actually. Well, I've got a lot of questions still. In fact, I remember Joe mentioning, you know, you have A and then B variant, and it seems like that they just look like cars. There's a new model of flu every year, and I want to know how that works, but we're going to hold that thought. We'll be back after this short break to continue our conversation with Dr. Bill Atkinson and Joe Elm about what goes into a flu vaccine. And, of course, what are some of the myths about getting immunized? Uh, we'd love to hear from you. And, of course, that number to call is 941 and from the neighbor islands, it's a free call at one eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Forget Washington this week. What about the rest of the American economy? If you were entirely cut off from the national economic news of showdown paralysis and things falling apart, you could feel that things were actually quite healthy. I'm Kai Rizdal. Once more into American futures, James Fallows and the Atlantic. Next time on Marketplace from APM. This evening at 6, following Bite Marks Cafe. On the next On Being, Alain de Botton likes the best of religion, but he doesn't believe in God. So he's founded a school of life. These religions at their highest points, at their most complex and subtle uh, moments, are far too interesting to be abandoned merely to those who believe in them. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. Sunday morning at 10, following Weekend Edition. Welcome back. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ran Ozawa, and we're talking to Dr. Bill Atkinson and Joe Elm about protecting yourself during flu season. And how foolproof is the flu vaccine? And, of course, uh, is this the state's first line of defense? Of course, you can give us a call. Number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands and of course, uh, we have uh, uh, Jack from the Big Island uh, waiting patiently. Welcome to the show, Jack. Well, thanks for uh, having me. I appreciate it. Sure. Yeah, I, I want to ask Bill. Uh, do you know what the the root word that the word flu comes from is? Ooh. Well, I uh, thought it was influenza. It's influenza, it was a... and yeah, it's right. an Italian. Okay. If I'm not mistaken, it's an Italian word that. Uh, has something to do with the sky or the air. Is Jack, okay, Jack, is that a loaded question? <laughs> it's well, a, I'm not it's finished. A, okay, and sure. so that's correct. And so what? what's the English equivalent of the Italian word influenza? Beats me. Influence. Ah. And okay. And so, uh, so one might say that they've caught the influence. Does that make any sense? Not to me, but that's just me. <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't make any sense to me either. I mean, when somebody says they've caught influenza, for some reason that sounds, we've heard that before, but I've never heard anybody say they've caught the influence. That just sounds, sounds kind of silly. What do you mean? You know? Sure. Well, well, the point that I'm getting to is that, is that the medical interpretation of the causes and what, what quote-unquote, the flu is, are totally incorrect. I mean, everything that you said is totally incorrect. Okay, and I'm not, I'm not making fun of you or putting you down. You believed everything that you were taught in medicine school, at the CDC, and everything else. 
but it's not true. And so what I'd like to recommend, if you have an open mind, is that you read a book by Dr. John H. Tilden, T-I-L-D-E-N. He was a medical doctor. He wrote a book called Toxemia Explained. You can Google it online. In fact, you can even read it online. Uh, I have a health consulting practice, and all I do is teach. I don't treat nothing, you know, nothing in that vein. It's just all education. And that's the first book that I start my students on, is Toxemia Explained. And that will take you in a whole different direction in terms of what causes lack of eases, including what we've labeled influenza or flu or influence or whatever you want to call it. It's not what you think it is. And the concept of vaccines, well, that has no validity either, unfortunately. So uh, you're, you're just, you know, you're off on a wild goose chase. I know you believe in what you're talking about. But you need to do some reading in a whole different area. All right. Well, well you know, Jack, thanks for uh, yeah. expanding our our, uh, our horizons there. Toxemia explained, uh, Dr. or uh, Mr. Tilden. Well, we'll check that out. I'm, I'm curious. The, the influenza, the virus itself, I mean, that exists, obviously. So has, you know, the science that I'm trying to understand is that through the years, they've isolated this virus. I mean, this virus must contribute to the condition of the human body. Uh, is that being questioned here? Is that, in fact, uh, what's what's happening? Or is that is uh, does Jack, you know, is saying that that's not, in fact, the the cause, the root cause of uh, getting sick? Well, I didn't expect to be discussing Cox postulates, but <laughs> but that was uh, two hundred years ago. It was there was a set of postulates put forth that said that uh, if a person was sick and you isolated an organism from that sick person, would take that organism, give it to a healthy person, that person became developed the same illness. That's basically Cox postulates in a in a in a nutshell. And there's a little question I don't know about Dr. Tilden or his book, but uh, we've seen influenza outbreaks. We've isolated influenza from people who have flu. We've isolated influenza from people who have died from flu. Uh, we have don't get influenza from people who don't have flu, the clinical illness. So uh, I think influenza has been studied for an awful long time. We know a lot about the immunology of it. We know a lot about how vaccines work and how they prevent illness and there's been lots of clinical studies done to show that people who are vaccinated don't get flu as much as people who aren't vaccinated so there's a uh, mountain of scientific data that that indicates that influenza virus causes influenza that influenza vaccine will make a person immune and reduce the chances that person will get sick so those are again dr tilden aside uh, those are pretty much undeniable scientifically proven facts uh, assuming that you base your belief in clinical science. Well, certainly, though, I mean, you can see there's there's controversy around any topic for sure. And I know that my kids certainly don't believe in the effectiveness of the flu shot that they get at school and would resist that. And even speaking for myself, sometimes I think, boy, I really think that of getting the, my flu shot is important. But I also seem to think that I get the flu after I get the shot. I mean, that's probably a complete misunderstanding of what's happening, that getting the shot makes someone sick. I mean, do you see that kind of similar resistance uh, here in Hawaii? I think you see resistance to that kind of thing. You hear those rumors, I got the flu shot and I had, I got the flu. Well, obviously it's a killed vaccine <laughs> and it doesn't cause the flu. Uh, it could be, you know, it was 
you're already exposed and you really did get the flu, or there's side effects, a sore arm, mm-hmm. usually the the culprit in, in flu vaccine. I'm sure Bill has listened to a litany of things, uh, side effects of a flu vaccine, and there'll always be people that say, oh, I won't get it because I got the flu after I got it. Well, but I think there's the important thing, though, is that we, we do get it. And I think that uh, the 2009 epidemic is a, a sort of a, like a good example because older individuals didn't get the flu, the, the H1N1. They had some experience in their past with an H1N1 virus that gave them at least partial protection. Bill, jump in there if I'm way off base. But they got partial protection. And my son came home. He had 103. He was on the floor shaking. I knew that he got it, but but I didn't get it from him. I had some experience in the past, either by vaccination or actually having the flu, and I was protected. And I think what maybe recombinant vaccine will do for us is we can add more of these uh, variants in there and uh, broaden our immunity to flu and sort of in preparation of what's to come. I mean, I think I could make a good argument to say we should have maybe H5, 7, and 9 in the flu vaccine if we're really worried about that jumping from birds to people. Mm-hmm. Because now we have some immunological experience with it and maybe partial protection. What do you think, Bill? Well, there is work. Uh, there's Remember that most of the influenza virus that circulates in the world circulates in birds. Birds are the are – the, and almost every warm-blooded species has, has influenza virus. But most of the – Every known species of flu exists in one form or another in birds, and most of our bad epidemics have been when a bird virus makes a jump from a species and becomes able to infect a human. Uh, The H5N1 episode a few years ago, there's now – there's several of these that are mostly in Asia having a lot to do with their – live bird markets and other things. So uh, no doubt there's there's a lot of work. There's actually work going on to try to develop those vaccines in advance. And it's true that, that some of this genetic engineering technology might be helpful in preparing uh, vaccines for some of these viruses that may or may not in the future actually jump from animals to birds or well, to humans. Before the break, we, I had mentioned and, you, and we talked about how there's different variants. There's A or B. There's this year, the previous year, the year before that. So I'm wondering when you're talking about maybe having a more broader coverage in a, specific, in a single vaccine, is that uh, one thing that we might be able to avoid? Or is there always going to be, from a year-to-year basis, a different formulation that needs to be created to address just that year's threats? Well, if it turns out that the vaccines that we've used now for 70 years for influenza, it uses a protein that's on the surface of the influenza virus. And that protein changes very quickly, actually. And it can change because flu isn't very good at making copies of itself. And when it grows, when it reproduces, it makes mistakes. And those mistakes turn into different looking proteins. And as time goes on, those mistakes accumulate and you end up with a virus that is different than the one that you had, say, a year ago. Mm. And the what the, the the holy grail of influenza vaccine is to keep searching for a protein or a a, a target on the flu virus that we could make a new kind of vaccine that wouldn't go after, wouldn't target the hemagglutinin, and the, the protein we've been using for all these years, and actually find one that's more stable, like with measles. We, we've had the same measles vaccine or the same hepatitis B vaccine uh, ever since they were developed, and measles virus doesn't change, and hepatitis B virus doesn't change. But if we could find a target on influenza virus that was stable and didn't constantly change, we could come up 
with the ultimate flu vaccine, which would be one that you wouldn't have to get every year because that protein remains the same year after year. Science, it's eluded us. Uh, there's continued work on that to look for sort of the universal influenza vaccine that doesn't force us to have to go back to the drawing board and make new vaccine every year, mm-hmm. which is what happens now. Right. So, how so that's clo- in the future. How close are they to find or isolate that, that uh, protein? Well, there's lots of people looking at it, lots of very smart people trying to you know, come up with new antibodies and all kinds of creative ways to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we may still be 10 or 15 years away from that because it's a moving target, and it's, it's hard to find that – Particularly since it, we've been successful with what we've got, um, you know, it, it everybody recognizes the fact that this would be a lot easier if we had could make a vaccine that we could use for mm-hmm. two or three or four years. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of looking at it, but I can't really tell the future that well. But I'd say it's probably going to be five to ten years at least. I got a question from uh, Twitter. John Shear asks uh, if you have any tips on pandemic preparedness and other info sources on immunizations like flu.gov, which ap- happens to be shut down right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, any sources you'd recommend? Well, one source that it's X and I'm not just beating my own drum here, but I work for a, a 501c3 uh, organization called the, in- the Immunization Action Coalition, which is based in St. Paul. And their purpose is to basically make influenza information av- or all kinds of vaccine information available, both to people who give vaccines, because this is a very complicated area. All these different vaccines, lots of schedules, different ages, uh, all these different things that doctors and nurses have to know in order to effectively give these, but also information for the public. And that's at a very, they got a really good URL. It's immunize.org, mm-hmm. immunize.org that has information both for clinicians, people who need practical guidance on how to give the vaccines, what's the schedule, uh, all those kinds of things, but also a lot of useful things for the public about Q&As and why should I get my child vaccinated against this vaccine or that vaccine. So it's a very useful and very user-friendly source of uh, immunization information. That's so, a good so recommendation. Joe, you know, um, has the Department of Health uh, sort of started their campaign to get the people vaccinated? I mean, uh, I know there's a list of a lot of the locations for, for where to get uh, your flu vaccine. Right. Uh, you'll see more and more in the media. But obviously, the um, sequestration and the cl- shutdown of government mm-hmm. may impact our stop flu at school. Uh, may set it back a week. We're not sure yet. But uh, we're planning to carry that on. And uh, with that, the campaign to get everybody uh, vaccinated. Because, you know, it's really a shame uh, that every year across the the U.S., we lose ten to 30,000 people to uh, because they got flu and then subsequently developed pneumonia and died, it, mm-hmm. it's it's preventable. Mm. Um, it, the vaccine isn't perfect, but we need to get it out there in as many arms or noses as we can, <laughs> so that uh, we we you know it it just seems ridiculous that we lose thirty thousand people some years to to flu when we have a vaccine seventy years uh, in development that works. Um, now, now, Joe, one of the things that you're well known for uh, at the Department of Health is this uh, surveillance and ability to identify areas that perhaps uh, outbreaks are taking place. Uh, what's some of, what are some of the tools that give you a sense of where that's uh, sort of the hot spots in, in Hawaii are? Well, we're really fortunate that we had uh, some dynamic individuals in the health department uh, and our surveillance that's been sort of headed up by Myra Ching Lee has got the all the local laboratories reporting to us when they test for flu 
they send us that information almost on a real-time basis, uh, the four major labs. So we're lucky in Hawaii that we have this electronic surveillance system. So every day we get reports of people that are positive for flu. Our state laboratory can do uh, sequencing and tell us, was it flu A or is it B, is it H3, is it H1? Uh, And we keep this information uh, and take samples during the flu seasons and the CDC, is the virus changing? Like Bill suggested, it's it's always changing during the season. Has it drifted away so the vaccine is not going to be reliable now with this flu that is circulating around. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have surveillance at the airport for incoming passengers, uh, international travel. So we work with the uh, Department of Global Migration and Quarantine to uh, pick up people that have flu at at the airport. So we get information from sentinel physicians, from electronic laboratory, and it paints a, a almost real-time picture of what's going on for not just flu, but, you know, if there's measles, bumps, rubella, or mm-hmm. wh- whatever in the state. So we're really kind of lucky we live in Hawaii in that aspect. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's the equivalent on the continent? I mean, uh, there's uh, there's sick weather, there's apps, there's people who just scan uh, Twitter and Facebook for mentions of having a fever or a cold and maybe developing maps from that. But what's the what's the picture on the mainland? The The national surveillance is very much like Joe described uh, here in that there is a huge network of laboratories that are constantly getting we prefer to use of uh, more documented illness when you've got isolates of flu virus mm-hmm. uh, that every state health department then collects these they do some testing they send those those specimens to CDC uh, there are a huge network of doctors offices that monitor people coming in with flu-like illness there are some social network functions that are trying to look at that but a lot of those are self reports and a little less reliable right, as opposed right. to having doctors report laboratories report uh, we monitor health uh, death certificates to look at the number of deaths uh, actually death from flu from a child is actually a reportable illness now so, so we get a, a very similar kind of situation that so we can get a picture in cl- not real, real real time, but pretty close to real time about what's going on all over the country. So, Joel, real quick, where can people find more information from the Department of Health? We have a web page, uh, uh, state. So it's uh, Hawaii Health dot dot health Hawaii dot gov. gov. Okay, <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, so it's uh, it's. Uh, uh, a work in progress. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> Bill, where, uh, where can people find more about your organization? I think you already said well, it. org is a good one, but the CDC has a massive amount of information. Unfortunately, it it's, is somewhat crippled at the moment because of the shutdown, and a lot of people aren't working at CDC because they got furloughed like a lot of other federal government employees. But once this hopefully will pass, uh, CDC has a huge amount of, of, of good information about influenza, both for the public and for people who are uh, uh, clinicians and giving the vaccines. Thanks All a lot. Right. Dr. Bill Atkinson is with the Immunization Action Coalition, and Joel Elm is with the Department of Health. We want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Please join us next week for the first day of Celebration 2013, and we'll have a rebroadcast of one of our favorite shows on the state of the web. And if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at bitemarkscafe.org. Of course, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at Bite Marks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. 
Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Porcelain Raft and a song called Cluster. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. This is my home.